Howdy and welcome to Wise About Texas, the award-winning Texas history podcast. My name is Ken Wise. I'm your host today and I am very grateful that you tuned into this podcast to hear a little bit about Texas history. We've got a special episode for you today about a time in the early 20th century where the Texas Rangers were sent into an East Texas town that was being terrorized by a gang. It really is the stuff of a classic Western movie, but it's got a little twist. This particular operation broke the barriers of strict, the strict racial segregation of the Jim Crow era, and it resulted in some groundbreaking legal process. For this episode, I'm interviewing a repeat guest here on Wise About Texas, Dr. Jody Edward Ginn. Dr. Ginn is one of the preeminent Texas Ranger scholars and, since his last appearance on this podcast, has accepted the position of Executive Director of the Texas Ranger Heritage Center in Fredericksburg, Texas, which is part of the former Texas Ranger Foundation and Association. The association was founded in the 1800s by some former rangers. Dr. Ginn has a book out called East Texas Troubles, The All Red Rangers Cleanup of San Augustine. I discovered and wrote about this story. It's a very interesting story. Now, I'll tell you, it's fashionable in some circles, especially these days, to try and rewrite history and take some radical political angle or argue that our history is not what it seems or whatever. Well, uh, the Rangers have even been a victim of that uh, recently. Well, you can save it. Uh, This podcast is about history. It's about real history, Uh, whether the facts are good or bad by our modern standards. uh, That's what we're interested in, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a time when a community needed help, when the rule of law had broken down and the Texas Rangers came in to restore it. So let's travel back to the 1930s in San Augustine, Texas, and get Wise About Texas with Dr. Jody Ginn. Dr. Ginn, welcome back to Wise About Texas. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Well, we're here to talk today about your most recent book, East Texas Troubles, Uh, which is a fascinating story on several levels of early 20th century East Texas. Uh, I introduced the book um, earlier. Tell us what prompted you to write this particular book. Well, that goes back actually to my childhood. Uh, My great-grandmother, Daisy Hines Carr, uh, lived to be 96 didn't pass away till I was 20 years old and I was very close to her. And I grew up hearing stories about her baby brother who had been a Texas Ranger. And and by my adulthood, all I recalled was that he had gone into a town in East Texas and quote, cleaned it up and was given a set of engraved pistols as thanks for those efforts. How did that impact you? Obviously as a young boy hearing that story, you, you figured you had a hero in the family, didn't you? Well, absolutely. You know, every, everybody that grows up in Texas knows who the Texas Rangers are and, and, um, and, and, and aspires to, to have some Texas Ranger ancestry in most cases. And so, you know, to hear that was, was certainly, obviously it stuck with me and it was, you know, many, many years later that it came back to me when I met my first Texas Ranger in person, uh, a Ranger uh, now retired named Tommy Ratliff. 
and I was a deputy constable in Hayes County, and he was the Texas Ranger stationed in that region. And we ran into each other in the sheriff's office, and it, and it came back to me, and I said, you know, how would I research? I understand I have an ancestor that was a ranger. How would I start finding out about that? And Tommy gave me some pointers, told me about the Waco Museum and about the Texas State Archives and some things like that, all things that, you know, just I had had no uh, connection to or, or knowledge of previously, and um, that kicked off. And um, that combined with, it turned out that those pistols still existed and were in the position, possession of his daughter who was still alive in Columbus, Texas. And she had not only pistols, but a, uh, a, a scrapbook of articles and photographs from that time that her mother had put together and she had saved and hadn't looked at in decades herself. So how did that impact you? I happen to know the end of the story there, but how did that impact your interest and love of history? Well, personal connection. I had always had an interest in history. I read a lot of historical fiction going back to when I was a very young child, uh, but that definitely kicked things off. And, and, and the more I dug, the more I found, the more motivated I can't became to, to dig deeper and learn more. And then the end of the story is you change careers. Right. You know, and some people ask me, they're like, wow, that's a big change from, from law enforcement to, to historian. But I was an investigator in the end, and, and, and all law enforcement are investigators to varying degrees uh, in their role. And really, I'm just applying the same tools, but I'm not putting anybody in jail over it. But I'm, I'm looking for evidence. I'm looking for records. I'm looking for details and proofs and to put together a story of what actually happened uh, just a lot longer ago. But it was this story that really set you on the path to change careers and become a historian. Abs Absolutely. This, was, um, this, this became my dissertation for the PhD at the University of North Texas and, and is now published as a book. So yeah, this is the core story that got me on this path. So in addition to your personal connection, which the listeners of this podcast have heard me talk about my personal connections and the impact that that has and, and the ties that we feel to our respective past, there's obviously something very powerful in this story that touched you as a law enforcement officer and as a public servant also. And I want to talk about that. This book, let me start by this, this book spans a time period at the end of Ma Ferguson, Miriam Ferguson's administration, and at the beginning of James Allred's administration. So uh, we'll get into the details of Ma Ferguson uh, versus other governors in some other episode, but uh, talk about the Texas Rangers in the context of the Ma Ferguson administration. And just for the listeners, you know, Ma Ferguson, Ma and Pa Ferguson were were uh, notoriously corrupt governors in Texas's past. So let's put the Texas Rangers in the context of Ma Ferguson's administration. What was the state of the Rangers at that time? Well, a journalist at the time had once quipped that a ranger badge and a nickel would get you a cup of coffee anywhere in the state of Texas. And of course, this is the depression and a cup of coffee costs a nickel on average. And, and that was because of governors like the Fergusons. Um, talk, you mentioned how the, that they were corrupt. That I, I did an exhibit in, in 2001, I wrote a grant and it was umbrellaed by the former Texas Rangers Foundation and um, a successful grant. It was funded by the Nelda C. and H.J. Letcher Stark Foundation of Orange and, and designed an exhibit 
that's a traveling exhibit, but it's been on display for some time at the Buckhorn Museum, the Texas Ranger Museum in the Buckhorn in San Antonio. And in that, I open up that talking about the corruption of the Fergusons. And we first exhibited that piece at the Wyo Ranch Hotel during the annual gala for the former Texas Rangers back in 2002. And I was standing next to the exhibit as people filed by and looked at it. And this one couple stopped and this lady who was, oh, uh, you know, at that time, definitely well into her 70s. Um, she stops and she reads every word. She is studying. She's what we call in the museum industry a studier. She is reading every word and looking over every picture and every detail. And after she's done, she looks over at me and she says, is this your exhibit? And I said, yes, ma'am, it is. And she says, well, um, Ma, uh, James and Miriam Ferguson were my, I believe she said aunt and uncle, yeah. or maybe great aunt and uncle, it's possible. And of course, so I just stood there, stone-faced, ready for the whatever might be about to come. And she looked me straight in the eye and said, and you don't know the half of how corrupt they were. <laughs> yeah, they were notorious. So what, what uh, the Rangers had, had been, um, of course, we have the 1800s Texas Rangers and their role evolved, continues to evolve, continues to this day to evolve. Uh, but they kind of hit a roadblock with Ma Ferguson. So what was that? Right. So when they were changed from the Frontier Battalion to the Ranger Force in 1901, the, the, the vague language of the statute in regards to the authority for appointing Rangers uh, began being uh, manipulated by certain governors, starting with Oscar Colquitt in 1910. And in, uh, traditionally, the, the governor would simply appoint the adjutant general. They were under the adjutant general's office at the time because they were originally a military unit. And even though they had evolved to get to gain law enforcement powers by this point, and so the, the adjutant general would be appointed by the governor, and then the adjutant general would appoint experienced ranger captains and those captains would appoint the men in their companies. But governors like Colquitt and most abused by the Fergusons started uh, taking on those appointments all the way down to the private level, to the very base level, every single appointment they took on themselves. And unfortunately, especially with the Fergusons, they weren't prone to appointing experienced and capable and respected lawmen, but more uh, prone to appointing political supporters regardless of their credentials and regardless of their criminal histories even. So what did that, so what was the state of affairs then? They were appointing actual criminals as law enforcement officers? In some instances, they appointed people with well-known, well-documented criminal histories as Texas Rangers. You know, uh, Lone Wolf Gonzalez, one of the most famous Rangers of that era, uh, once once said that uh, that the Fergusons had to pardon their Rangers before they appointed them. Oh, well, that's not obviously not sustainable. What was the effect on the law enforcement uh, situation in Texas with that state of affairs? Well, it, it became um, inept, ineffectual, and, and, um, and its, its uh, uh, reputation greatly diminished, hence the quote from the journalist. Um, well, fast forward for a minute. How did James Allred change that when he came into office? So James V. Allred 
was one of the young, he was the youngest governor elected at the time. He had been the youngest attorney general elected. He had been one of the youngest DAs in the state up in Wichita Falls. And he came in on a platform of law enforcement reform, building on a study that the legislature had commissioned from a company out of uh, Chicago called Griffin Hagen Associates to revamp uh, state law enforcement. And, and, and he comes in and, and among the many other things, uh, he, he leads the effort to, to actually create what we now know as the Department of Public Safety. And that was by combining the Rangers with the Highway Patrol and creating some additional bureaus. So it sounds like that was a big part of his early role as governor was to fix the problems that the Ferguson's created in the law enforcement scheme in Texas. Absolutely. He came into the 44th legislature with that at the top of his priorities. All right. So let's go to St. Augustine, Texas, and the subject of the book. What was the situation in St. Augustine uh, at the time of these troubles? So St. Augustine was was in such dire circumstances by this time that it was the other top. They, they all read, actually commissioned new rangers and sent them into St. Augustine the day after he was inaugurated. And anybody involved with politics knows that's made it a pretty dang high priority. And the reason it was that way is because for years, this, uh, a local gang, uh, I kind of referred to him at one point as a, as an unsophisticated East Texas Lacosta Nostra sort of thing, um, not near as organized, but they they had built their power over many many years and it started now this is the the height of the jim crow era and under jim crow while the, while the laws had been declared unconstitutional the culture remained the same and that is that blacks were rarely if ever able to bring any sort of criminal charges against whites who committed crimes against them. And we're in the 30s at this time, we're in the, so the listeners have yeah. to Yeah, and some of these events probably even started in the 20s and escalated over time. But by the 30s, these guys were just completely out of control. They're just shooting people in broad daylight on the town square in front of dozens of people who are afraid. No, you know, the, the, the local criminal justice system had just ground to a halt because people wouldn't testify in front of grand juries. People wouldn't serve on grand juries to indict. They wouldn't testify against them. They wouldn't serve on juries to convict them. I mean, people were leaving. To, if they found out they were going to be a witness, they'd leave town. They'd leave the state. And so um, it, 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 the, the, the city was under the, or the whole community, the county was under the total control of this gang. And they had built their power taking advantage from the beginning, taking advantage of blacks. And, and, and it was basic crimes. It was, you know, kind of, one of the things you heard a lot about was highway robbery. Well, what they were doing was, is most of the, the African-American community there were sharecroppers. And sharecroppers, or they were tenant farmers, and, and there's a subtle difference in that sharecroppers basically split the proceeds. They don't have to pay any rent for the land, but they split a, split a higher portion of the proceeds of, of each crop with the landowner. Tenant farmers have to pay rent, and that, that number doesn't change no matter how good or bad their crop is. So it's, it's a gamble. You could make more money one way than the other, depending on how good your crop is. But the bottom line is, is these people were living hand to mouth, and these, they would barely, they'd have to borrow money at the local stores, have accounts to get their equipment and their seed and things. And they would, um, and then when they would sell their crop, they'd have to pay off that debt and then survive the rest of the season on their, you know, on the proceeds. 
and so they would go to the to the uh, to the gin and sell their cotton crop or whatever else they're growing, uh, primarily cotton in that area during this time, and they'd be traveling home, often on foot, um, many many miles, and they would these guys would stop them, and and rob them right on the highway. And if they missed them along the way home, but they knew that they had sold their crop, they might show up at their home and, uh, and come up with some scam. Like, you know, uh, a lot of these guys eventually uh, obtained law enforcement commissions and that sort of thing locally, and they'd run some scam on them saying, you, you committed this offense, but you pay me this fine, and, you know, we'll call it even. And, and, and you know, and, and so they would pay money. Or, or one story that comes out... Um, which, which even the appellate court, the Court of Criminal Appeals Justices found laughable, was uh, this, this, this white guy claims in his defense that he had loaned a young black man uh, $10 for dinner, and this is at a time when you know dinner might have cost a quarter, and um, that he had loaned a young black man who by his own mission he had never known this $10 and he had simply gone to get this $10 back, but in fact he had extorted this man for about 30 or 40 or $50 over time. So was it only the black community they were terrorizing, or were they terrorizing the entire town? To begin with, that's where they started, and they built their power, and the more powerful they came, the more they stretched out to where um, they, they didn't so much as commit these petty crimes against whites, but when whites started to buck what they were doing, and when they would get, uh, you know, because you know, the communities, even though it's segregation and even though it's, it's, it's Jim Crow, these, these people are still um, connected, including economically, again, because a lot of the, the landowners that they're tenant or sharecropping for um, are whites. And so when they can't, they come to them and say, well, I got robbed, I can't pay my rent, you know, um, things like that. Well, they, they're going to their, their white associates and, and telling them what happened. And so then that's, that's affecting them. So they start pushing back on these guys. And that's when those guys start getting violent. And so anyone that's, that would buck in the end, you know, they'd kill them. They'd get them in cold blood. They, they, they murdered numerous people right on the town square, like I say, in front of, in front of dozens of witnesses. So that obviously could not stand. So you said All Red sent Rangers immediately upon inauguration. How did the All Red Rangers go about cleaning up St. Augustine? So um, All Reds would have been the equivalent of his chief of staff was a, was a man named... Um, um, Ed, Ed Clark. And Ed Clark was from San Augustine. Ed Clark had been an assistant attorney general under Attorney General Allred, came over as his chief of staff, and he's the one who lets Allred know my hometown is out of control because his, his family is suffering through all of this. And they were some of the key supporters of bringing in the Rangers and having them there uh, ever after. And, and they were some of the people that, that, that funded those pistols that were given as gifts later on. And so that, that's why the governor was aware of this situation and why he took swift action. And so he sends a team in. It's kind of unclear how many rangers were there on the front end. There was at least maybe half a dozen. Some accounts indicate that Lone Wolf Gonzalez with, it, with them, even though he really wasn't a ranger right at that point. Um, but he was out in the vicinity. It's, it's not unreasonable to think he might have been brought in. Uh, there's some indications that possibly even Manny Galt of Bonnie and Clyde fame. Uh, uh, was there because we do know that he initially got assigned to go back there later in 1936, um, though it's not clear whether he actually did 
end up at that duty station because he got promoted to sergeant about that time. Um, but there's, you know, in the realm of about half a dozen or so initially go in. And you got to remember, this is, you know, this is just five years after the 1930 Sherman riots where thousands of people showed up and, and, and literally burned down their own courthouse to, to lynch a local black man accused of, of um, assaulting a white woman. And um, one of the most, you know, shameful episodes in, in Texas history. And, you know, Frank Hamer said he basically shook the dust off his shoes and never went back to that town after what he saw happen there. And, uh, and so they're, they're, they're coming in with that, you know, in very close memory. And, and so they don't know what to expect. So they send a pretty solid team of rangers in to begin with to make sure things are, can be put under control. And once they get a lay of the land, within a couple of weeks or so, most of the rangers go on to their regular duty stations and they leave two rangers there for about a, another month or so. Um, uh, the, that's Dan Hines and Leo Bishop, and under the command of Captain James W. McCormick, who, like Allred, was originally from Wichita Falls, had been sheriff there and had been a ranger many, many years. And so, and then, and then within two months, they they felt they had it under control enough that they left Dan Hines there as the ranger on the ground. Um, Leo Bishop went back to his regular duty station in the valley, and 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 Captain McCormick, you know assumed his duties as captain of the region, but coming through on a very regular basis and taking part in some of the investigations. So what's an example, if they got it under control, what's an example of how they would get it under control? Well, from the beginning, they, it was a show of force, uh, not only in their numbers, but uh, they, they would do things like, uh, uh, first of all, they wore you know dual sets of pistols and often carried rifles on top of that. They always stood with their backs to the wall or backing up each other so that no one could sneak up on them. And they would, uh, they would show off their, their um, shooting prowess. They would uh, put on kind of, you know, um, shows of, uh, they would, you know, throw bottle caps in the air, you know, and shoot them. Or, and they would, they would shoot cans, uh, you know, while driving down the road. They'd shoot while moving, you know, cans positioned on, you know, fence posts or things like that. So they would, you know, show off that ability, and then they would talk tough. They would, they would. Um, one of the the kind of the most notorious uh, instances um, uh, was Dan Hines. Well, it was Dan. It was Dan and Lee. It was when Leo was still there, and Captain McCormick, and they had kind of set up shop. Their headquarters, their unofficial headquarters, was in a local cafe. And um, they were sitting in there, and one of the uh, one of the gang members comes in and says, you know, he's there to turn himself in because they'd gotten warrants for these people, and they had told them, you know, you can't carry because a lot of these guys had Ferguson Special Ranger Commissions or they had local law enforcement commissions, and they had told them those aren't any good anymore. If we catch you carrying a gun, you're going to be arrested. And but a couple of these guys who they had already you know made some initial cases on, they had warrants for, and so this one who was one of kind of the leaders. Uh, Wade McClanahan, um, he comes in to turn himself in and walks in and um, Captain McCormick looks to his two rangers and tells them, yeah, you know, one of y'all, you know, take him to the jail. And the two rangers start, you know, joking with each other and say, ah, you better take him because I'll probably just shoot him on the way there. <laughs> you know, and just, you know, they're making a point. They're not playing with these guys because these guys had killed many people. They knew it. They knew if the, if they could get the upper hand, they you know, and so they wanted to let them know that they were as ruthless as 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 they needed to be. They and uh, and, and you know, it's 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 a psychological warfare game. So they uh, the gangs had 
terrorized the town, the Rangers came in and terrorized the criminals. Exactly. Well, that sounds, well, that was obviously effective because they cleaned up the town, but we need to address one more aspect of this, and that was the race relations aspect, because you mentioned this was a se obviously during segregation and, and Jim Crow was in full effect, and so what about the black community? Because they were, they were the first and probably most intense victims of these criminal gangs. Did they participate in this cleanup? Were they glad to see the Rangers, or what? how did that trend? Absolutely. In fact, to this day, the people who, you know, now, and many have died since, though though many were alive during the 20 years I researched this, and, and I got to interview them, and, and they were very emphatic. First of all, they knew the difference between a Ferguson Ranger and an All Red Ranger. And Ferguson Rangers were the bad guys, and All Red Rangers were the good guys. And they were very, you know, unequivocal about that. Um, they were also unequivocal about the fact that, that there, was, there was a liaison from their community with the Rangers that helped build a rapport and a trust between there. Because again, a lot of these guys committing these crimes were law enforcement. So if some strange white guy with a gun and a badge shows up, they're not just gonna trust him. They're not gonna tell him anything. And so there had to be this person. And, and there's still some mystery, unfortunately, that may be lost to history as to exactly how it all came about. But there was a young man who's pictured on the cover of the book um, uh, with a smile, Dan Hines with a big grin looking at the young man. And the young man's wearing a set of pistols. Now, I don't know if they're his own pistols or if they were a set of the Rangers pistols that they just let him put on for the purposes of the photo shoot. Um, but there's two sets of those photos in existence, one in the family of Dan Hines, the other in the family of Leo Bishop which are now in a, in, a, in a local historian's hand. She bought from an estate sale. But, um, but the, those two, two totally separate sets, you know, survived. And um, it was clear that they had a close and, and positive relationship with this young man. And, and the members of the community said, yeah, I mean, it was, it was essential because if they would have shown up at their relative's house asking questions, they would have just said, we don't know what you're talking about. They would have never revealed to them anything because they didn't, wouldn't have known they could trust them. So there is some, there is some lost, you know, probably series of events that came to where this guy said, you know, yeah, these guys are here to help us. And, 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 it, and it gets revealed because, see, when I started this, I, I didn't know about the racial element. I mean, all I had were some really vague, high-level stories about, you know, shootouts on the town square and the rangers coming in to clean up, and, and that all involved white people. Right. And it wasn't until I gored into the records of the Court of Criminal Appeals at the Texas State Archives that I learned and heard directly from the African-American Texans who were victimized by this and who did get their day in court to present their case and that white juries convicted these white men based solely on their testimony, that's when I really realized the significance of this story. So let me interrupt you right quick. So what you're saying is that the Rangers, when they came in, it wasn't just coming in and, and kind of out-toughing the gang. They actually went into the black community despite what a modern listener might think of segregation being like. They, they really served the entire community and, and integrated the, the black community in these investigations in an attempt to clean up the, the whole mess rather than just part of it. Is that what you're getting at with that Abs idea that there was some agent that, or liaison that helped them do that in the black community? 
Absolutely. It is very evident from the, the voluminous court records, the de detailed testimony of these people, that that's exactly what happened, that the, that the Rangers, after they got the town under control, they started actually, they spent about a solid year and, and, and more doing detailed investigations into these cases that, I mean, in some of these cases go back several years, you know, the, these crimes had happened previously. And these were, you know, the ones that, that not only made it, I mean, numerous cases were filed and the people pled out. And so there's no surviving records, testimony, any of that kind of stuff, but a handful of cases were appealed and because of that these records were preserved and this testimony by these african-american texans was was preserved that tell that story of exactly what you just described that that the rangers came in they actively sought out these black victims and witnesses took their testimony believed their testimony and took them to the court filed those cases and and even protected them in the courtroom from you know reprisals which was a significant breaking of norms, as someone familiar with Texas's legal history discuss a little bit about the the massive change that was uh, in the way things were done during these segregated times, because the judicial system was not exempt from uh, poor performance, let's say, uh, during the Jim Crow era. Uh, talk, you you alluded to it, and I interrupted you. Go talk about that significant race relations lesson we can learn from these cases. Right. Well, it was it was really far more complicated than I think a lot of us, you know, picture it, that, that there was these sharp lines between white and black, and often there were. And perhaps sometimes it took events like this to, to break through those lines. But in this case, uh, we, we know that, that these white rangers made the concerted effort to go into the black community and establish rapport and, and, and the black community made the concerted effort to, to determine that they could trust these individuals and work with them. And by working together, they were able to take down this gang that had, had basically run, reigned unchallenged for maybe a decade. Maybe but, they had, but they relied on testimony from African Americans, which was not the normal thing, even though legally it could be considered. Legally, uh, it could be considered, but traditionally in Jim Crow, it, it, it simply wasn't. They, they, I mean, general, the, nor, the norm was that if a, if a black person had the audacity to make a, a claim of a criminal act by a white against them, they, they would at best be ignored, if not, if not at worst, suffer you know, retaliation. So this is a complete, you know, I mean, when I first described that about, you know, white juries convicting white men solely on the basis of the testimony of blacks in front of some of my colleagues who are experts, uh, one being the president, I mean, the chief historian of the TSHA, uh, Walter Banger, Dr. Walter Banger, who is a Jim Crow era scholar, he walked by as I was describing that to another colleague and he about got whiplash turning around saying, what did you say? <laughs> do you have a publisher? <laughs> I said, well, thanks, actually, I already do. but. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 astounding and it's and it's groundbreaking and it and it definitely flies in the face of of our uh, traditional notions of of what went on during that period and I think it's a strong argument for looking deeper at other situations and other cases and not making assumptions about how whites and blacks interacted um, during that time at, you know especially when it came to the criminal justice system and 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 you know mutual interest and dealing with a with a criminal element well it's a great story and it's a great book um, 
and it's a, a much a deeper story than even you thought when you started it. It's, it's a story about, it, it's a good tale of uh, good guys and bad guys, but it's also a deeper tale about the resilience of Texans and the need for all of our communities for law and order, despite what artificial separations might be put upon us. So um, before I let you go, let me ask you, uh, in the introduction I mentioned you're the executive director of the former Texas Ranger Foundation, which came about after uh, you had already started this book. And uh, tell us what's going on with the former Texas Ranger Foundation, briefly. So, uh, yes, I'm the executive director of the Texas Rangers Heritage Center, which is a project of the former Texas Rangers Foundation, which is the 501c3 arm of the former Texas Rangers Association. The former Texas Rangers Association was founded in 1897 by former Rangers, and it, its members are made up to this day of former Rangers and their descendants. And uh, their, their goal is to, to preserve and promote the history of the Texas Rangers. They had a museum on the grounds of the Witty for decades, starting in 1936. Uh, outgrew that facility. They 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 partnered in a in a um, interim facility with with the Buckhorn in in uh, San Antonio, but have been in the process of raising the funds and continue to to are working towards raising the funds to build a museum now in Fredericksburg, which is a you know of course become the the go-to tourist destination in Texas. And uh, the generous partnership by the city of Fredericksburg uh, gave a 99-year lease on 12 acres at the gateway to the city and already have a beautiful uh, phase one facility, which includes all the infrastructure, a open air pavilion with commercial catering, kitchen facilities and custom bathrooms, almost like Bucky's and so forth. A very nice facility there that's available for lease uh, for weddings and other events. And, uh, but also several commemorative bronzes and structures, a Campanile Bell Tower and the Ranger Ring of Honor, which is a giant Texas Ranger badge replica on a stone edifice with bronze plaques uh, carrying the names of all the Rangers who have been killed in the line of duty. So what are the future plans for that former Texas Ranger site in Fredericksburg? Well, we are working and hopefully getting close to, to starting to build a modern, uh, a Texas Rangers History Museum. This will not be a traditional artifact museum, but it will be a, a, a facility that tells the chronological linear narrative history of the Texas Rangers from prehistory all the way to the present, opening up with, you know, the connections between the, the, the Rangers were built on, on a foundation of combining both Anglo and Spanish traditions. You know, the term Ranger, of course, came, comes from the Anglo tradition, but the mounted aspects, especially fighting from horseback and, and the pursue and strike doctrine of the early Rangers period, that comes from the Spanish tradition of the flying companies. And so we start there and we build up all the way through the modern age. Well, that'll be fascinating. We'll look forward to seeing that. Uh, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today as the director of the Heritage Center and uh, one of the preeminent Ranger scholars in Texas. Uh, it's an honor to have you on Wise About Texas. The book is East Texas Troubles, and my understanding is it's now in paperback right in time for Christmas. Is that right? That's correct. All right. Well, thanks for being with us today, and uh, uh, good luck with the Heritage Center. Well, thank you, Judge Wise. It's my honor. Now we come to the part of the episode I call Getting There, where I tell you how to get to a couple of places that we mentioned in the episode. San Augustine is in East Texas, east of Nacogdoches on Highway 21 
which runs uh, right through town. It's a charming place. got a ton of history in it. Uh, the Mission Dolores Historic Site is there, and uh, an interesting, fairly new historic area called the Lobanillo Swales, which was part of a 1700s ranch, and uh, they're improving that. You can get a flavor for what it might have looked like back in the 1700s. You heard Dr. Ginn talk about the former Texas Ranger Heritage Center in Fredericksburg, Texas. They have various events throughout the year. So as we hopefully soon get back to normal, this podcast is being released in late 2020. Check out their website at www.trhc.org. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas. Oh, one thing. You heard Dr. Ginn mention Edward Clark uh, in the episode as uh, one of uh, Governor Allred's senior advisors uh, and later Secretary of State of Texas. Edward Clark also became friends later with Lyndon B. Johnson, and Clark made an appearance in Episode 2 of Lies About Texas as Lyndon Johnson's legal counsel in that famous 1948 election. So if you haven't heard Episode 2, go catch up. You can find, uh, please like and share the Wise About Texas Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Wise About Texas. And if you're interested in supporting the preservation and promotion of Texas history, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Wise About Texas. Thanks again for listening. Go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.